Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. When an actor acknowledges the audience, then you can have a moment of ecstasy. For me, writing plays has always been very tricky. I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot to say. I mean, he said there's only two directions, days: A little more or a little less. Hmm. That was it. Getting started in theater is difficult. Maintaining a career even harder. Becoming a true success is nearly impossible. Each of my guests today have accomplished that feat. All three have contributed work that has profoundly affected audiences and changed the landscape of American theater. I'll speak to a playwright and a veteran actor of stage and screen, but first, a powerful performer who's most at home on the Broadway stage, often in musicals. Last year, she appeared on Broadway in David Mamet's The Anarchist, but she's capable of anything. Patty Lapone was in the very first class of the drama division at Juilliard. She has 26 Broadway credits to date and has won two Tony Awards, one for Evita and one for Gypsy. She's worked in film and on television, most notably as the mom on the ABC drama Life Goes On. So how was your day, Libby? Oh, just fine, thank you for asking. More fun and excitement than I knew what to do with. And yours? I didn't do the ironing. You what? Lapone's career has not been without its heartbreaks. In 1976, she was hired to replace the lead in the musical The Baker's Wife. Who does he think he is? Who could be as handsome? Who could be as smart as he thinks he is? She was on the road for a grueling six months. They rehearsed every day and performed every night. The reviews were so terrible, ushers sent candy backstage to cheer the actors up. 
I've always said there's a fine line between a hit and a flop, and it's, you don't know what it is. You don't know why it is a hit, and you don't know why it is a flop. You know, if it's really terrible, you, you know right off the bat, and you're not going to take the job. But if it has the potential to be a hit and ends up being a flop, you can't figure it out. So you do this show, and when you come out of that, like, what's the lesson for you? Did you was there something you said to yourself, never again am I going to... No, I went into a depression for nine months. I was on Valium to sleep for the six months, and I went into a Valium depression for nine months, gained 40 pounds, woke up, went, what the hell just happened? And I couldn't say— Why do you think that is? Like, like you, you care a lot. There's nothing casual about you. There's nothing amateurish about you. You know, you're very serious, and you're very dedicated. You're very hardworking, along with being very talented. And you feel these wounds. Why do you think that is? Why did it well, affect you so much? Well, our business is subjective. It's all subjective. You know what I mean? You talk to anybody from the baker's wife, and they can remember it as if it was yesterday. And there's blood spilled, and we became blood, a blood family. I just saw Timmy Jerome, who's in Phantom now, and we see each other, and what we recall is that bonding and that horrible experience, and we can talk about it as if it was yesterday. I think it's because, you know, it it happened to us. Of course, it happened to the creators, but they're not on stage. We're on stage succeeding or failing in front of an audience. We're on stage being judged by the audience. We're the messengers. We're the ones who take the hit. We take the hit all the time. We're the ones and, who and take the hit. And this was really abusive. It was just horrible. I woke up one morning and my face was filled with what looked like whiteheads. The entire face had raised bumps on it. I didn't know what it was. I went to sleep, woke oh, up, and the entire face, I, I, maybe it was from the Valium. I have no idea. But I was. Right. Things were happening to us, physically happening to us. And when does the sun come out for you? When does the sun come out for Patti Lapone career-wise? I think when I go back to work with David Mamet. I go back and work with David. I go into— I mean go back? David and I did a play in Chicago. Was that the after Baker's Wife? Was that— I see. I'm trying, to keep, I'm trying to keep it straight. What play did you do with him first? The very first play I did with him was a thing called All Men Are Whores. Kevin Klein, Sam Chichifis, and I did it at Yale Rep for one night. I said, hey, Dave, we opened and closed in New Haven. And New Haven used to be one of the circuit, uh, the, you know, when you took a show out of town, your first stop was New Haven. And it was a big deciding factor. Sure. So we opened and closed. We bombed in, one night. in New Haven. We bombed in New Haven. <laughs> well, and from there, he gave me a play called The Woods. And what happens when you do The Woods? Well, I go back to what I was trained for, and I go back to an honest environment, pretty much. And you're back to the circle of trust. Yeah. Everything feels right. Yeah. This is more like it. And it's a risk. It's a big risk. I mean, every time I work with David, I learn so much as a human being. What year was that approximately? I think late 1976, 77. So you had a relationship with him. Yes. Well, we met him. For 35 years. Yes, yes. And I I will drop everything to do a play by David. Everything. I, I don't care how risky it is. I, I learn so much from David, and I, I, I instinctually have the mammoth speak. That's something that I know how to do, his, his rhythms. Um, and I think it's because, as someone said, I cut my teeth on David. Is Evita the, the next big thing for you? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. In, I did in my stage recollection, Evita is the big thing. Evita is. is the thing that, that changes your life. That was 1979. Okay. But in between— and How does that happen? I audition— um, Joanna Merlin is Hal Prince's casting director, and of course— as Hal I, directed. 
I'll direct it. And so I was brought in for a preliminary audition, and then I was told to make myself free, make sure that I made myself free for the final callback. And as I understand it, Hal wanted to cast actors in the role, the roles, um, as opposed to just musical theater people. So I think that's one of the reasons why I got in there, because I, he knew, they knew I was an actor. In between, there were several plays. There was stage directions by Israel Horovitz, John Glover, Ellen Green, and I down at the public, while Merrill's doing— um, Yeah, you're doing everything you can to scratch that itch of yours and not become a star. No, I get it. No, yeah. no, it was, yeah, the, no, uh, yeah, it, was the, it was the available work. We're about to talk about the moment when perhaps one of the greatest musical stars of the last 50 years is born on Broadway. What so a compliment, ta- thank so you. So let's talk about how that, the moment this happens, Hal Prince wants people who can act and sing, and you go to the, make yourself available to the final callback, and what happened? How do you feel when you're in that room? Well, I, I was very mad, because I was actually shooting 1941, and there was a little issue about, about Spielberg's letting— Spielberg's movie. Yes, right. about letting me go. And the producer said, if you're not back tomorrow or the next day, you're, you'll never work in Hollywood again. So I left— Hollywood with those words ringing in my ear, and I woke up in New York to the 1978 blizzard where there were like two feet of snow on the ground. Couldn't get back to L.A.? I couldn't get back to L.A. Did they no. fire you? No. Um, Christopher Reeve got me on the plane. I only missed three hours of shooting. When they said, how'd you get here? I said, Superman. Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I did. It's absolutely That Juilliard true. camaraderie. Exactly. So I went to the final callback, but I was really mad because I didn't want to do this musical. I didn't like the music. I thought, Which one? Evita. You didn't like it? Uh-uh. No. What, what specifically? You're a smart woman. What specifically didn't you like? Well, I didn't like, I heard the White Album, the Julie Covington, David Essex, Colm Wilkinson. Very rocky, weird music. But ro- it rocked out a lot. And I thought, what's the matter with me? I'm a rocker. I want to be a rocker. Right. It was Here's your really, really high. It didn't grab me. I mean, I grew up on Rodgers and Hammerstein. I grew up on Julie Stein, Meredith Wilson, Stephen Sondheim. This was not a musical to me. This was... Noise from Britain. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. It just didn't. It did. So how did you go out there and do it? I went out and and the final audition. I was wet from my knees down. I was wearing sneakers and jeans, not knowing it was going to snow. Who you know? I did so stupid. I didn't look at the weather report. Yeah. I went out there and I blasted, literally blasted through Rainbow High, Buenos Aires, and Don't Cry for Me, Argentina. And there were tears in my eyes, apparently. And there were there were tears of rage, necessarily <laughs> right. not tears of right. And I left and. Um, I got I got a call on the set. I made it back, and I, I got a call on the set in the makeup trailer, and they said uh, you've got the part. And I started to cry again because I had promised David that I would reprise the Woods <laughs> at the Public Theater with Ulu Grossbart directing. <laughs> what I love is that you're going to blow your Hollywood film career to go do a musical you don't even like, and then that one they offer to you, you're not sure you're going to take that because you got to go do another little mammoth play. Well, I had been trained to be an actor, and I thought my responsibility was to act at every possible opportunity, and especially good opportunities. Keep working. To, uh, you know, if it's worthy material. Put it, put, you know, apply your craft, and if it's good material. And, and I, David and I forged a friendship and a bond, and I didn't want to let him down. David and I became really, really good friends. David lived on 20th. He'd come over all the time for breakfast. We'd walk around. We'd go, do antiques. I'm going to start calling you Al, by the way, because you keep changing the subject. What <laughs> happened with Hal? How did Hal mean. get you to do that material? And it, and it became what it became. Well, no, I knew I had to do it. I cried because I knew that I would have to. I couldn't do the woods, and I had to do Evita because I knew I wanted to work with Hal, and I knew that it would change the course of my career. You knew going in that it was going to be a hit. There was so much hype before 
Have they done it in London? Yeah. So it was a big hit in London. Huge hit in London. And you were in the American cast. It was right. a huge hit in London. So you knew this was a big opportunity. And for there you. was hype. You can't believe that was my first indication that this was going to be a tough experience because it was, I went, how am I going to get around the hype? It was the first musical that I was aware of that had so much pre opening hype. The modern way. Not even buzz. And it was frightening. And I had no vocal technique. So now this thing is all hyped up. You've been through everything you've been through. You've had some good times and some tough times, and you've worked hard. God knows, four years in the row with Hausman and that company. And you step out for the Broadway opening, the opening of Evita. What was that like for you? How did that evening I go? I had the flu. Perfect. Of course you did. Yeah. It won't be easy. You'll think it's strange when I try to explain how I feel. I still need your love after all that I've done. You and I threw up in the sink before I sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. I'm sure it was a combination of... I got, I, I got extremely bad notices opening in L.A. and extremely bad notices opening in San Francisco. And Hal came to me and said, we're going to laugh about this in 20 years, Patty. They pulled the entire company together, and he said there was an article coming out in Susie Knickerbocker's column the next day that I was going to be fired and that Actors' Equity was waiting to clear Elaine Page to take my place. And this was in the newspaper. She's a Brit. Yeah, she's the one that originated in London. I'm dealing with all of this press of me being fired and me not being able to sing the part and still going on for my Throwing up in the sink. Well, that was was opening night. And so, so you go out and do the opening, and what happens? Bad reviews again. Actually, they weren't bad. They were, they dismissed Hal, and this is a this was an innovative. This was an innovative concept, an innovative production. They dismissed Hal, and they barely touched on Mandy and me. And that's worse when you're ignored. Right. It's one thing if they're passionate and you're bad, right. and passionate when you're good. But when you're ignored, and Mandy and I at one point, I think I said, "You want to go out for a drink?" He said, "Yeah." And we 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 were on fifty second. I think that's where the the Broadway Theater is, and we walked down 8th Avenue, and simultaneously, we burst into tears. I mean, we worked hard in those parts, and then to be ignored is tough. And then, of course, nine months later, they give us the Tonys. When you win the Tony, did, was it any vindication for you at all, or was it just an Oh, empty? of course. Was. So oh, you my felt God. good. When you won, oh, how did you feel? Oh, yeah, it's such a relief. It was such a relief, <laughs> because really, if you did read Did it wipe my... everything away? Kind no, of? because I was still performing and still scared out of my mind every night. I envied Mandy, because Mandy was just all over the place. He didn't have a problem singing it, so he literally, he told me, uh, he told me something the other day. We were talking about Evita, and he said, well, Hal told me to go. He wanted me over there. And I said to Hal, how do I get there? He said, I don't know. Just get there. And so that's where he does a jeté across the stage. And I went, I would see it every night going, why is Mandy <laughs> doing that? And it was because Hal told him to get, get there, get there. there. And Mandy put how. it in. He didn't care how, so Mandy put it in. And it became part of his performance. Sure. And And so... And I suppose in that respect, Hal gives the actor freedom, but I didn't have that freedom because I was so tied up in a knot because I didn't think I could sing it. I wanna be a part of be a Buenos Aires big apple. Would I have done what I did if I hadn't thought, if I hadn't known, we would stay together? Really, and you know, when you in a rehearsal period. 
You know this. You have to do it over and over and over again. So you're not hitting that D in screw the middle classes once. You're not hitting that G in screw the middle classes once. You're doing it over and over right. again. I didn't have vocal technique to, to know that I didn't have to hit those notes every day. I didn't have vocal technique. I got it during the run by, from a, a kid in the chorus. Who? David Vosberg. I came off stage in in LA. He gave you LA. tips. They got him a piano. They put a piano in my dressing room, and he I, he worked with me an hour every single day before the show. He would come to me, and um, work out of the goodness of his heart. David and, Vosberg. David Vosberg. Where is he now? Uh, he's in Ohio. He's a director of opera, but he would um, give me a vocal technique. He would warm me up, and the the, the difficult thing was to be to apply what he had just taught me that night because I would do one thing right, something else would go disastrously wrong. But at least I was getting a technique to sing that part. He saved my job. And they they knew that, and they paid him. Now, you say, when you talk about this, you talk about the tension and the anxiety and the fear, and you, you don't really want to necessarily be doing Evita because you got another David play and this and this and that. When did it start to become fun for you? Oh, Anything Goes was a ball. Okay, so talk about that. Why? Oh, because of the material and because of the cast, and and it was hysterical. I Who mean, directed you? Jerry Zachs, and Jerry did a great <laughs> job of directing. And he's tough. Yes, he is. Yeah. And but Demand. however, these were the, the way musicals used to be written. You'd have a joke coming, and then a, a gorgeous song. The material was so ripe and so beautiful. If I was in a bad mood, all I had to do was hear that. And okay, I know where I am yeah, tonight. Ex- exactly. Just looking in, at the audience and seeing tears of joy from laughter. The only thing we are as actors are messengers. That's all we are, correct? We are delivering the playwright's intention through the concept of the director. And I come on stage, if I feel confident in the role, then I give it away. I give it away anyway, but it's all about them. So I have to go out there and love them, and I do, and I think they see that. They can relax with me because they know I'm giving it to them. I'm not—you know, there are some actors that don't want to be on stage, well, it's funny and you, you say that know you, that. Well, because you just nailed it, because Patty Lapone to me as a woman who comes out there, when the first thing she does, she's up there, and she's like, you know— How's everybody doing? It's like a little moment, like a nightclub singer, like, you know, how you all doing tonight? Without saying how you all doing tonight. Like, just connect to them and let them feel like there's no place else we'd rather be, is there, than here right now. Well, I think our responsibility is to relax them. You've been in an audience, I've been in an audience where we're worried for the performer. And then we're not having the experience. They're paying a lot and if, of... And if I'm worried for the performer and they, and they should be worried for, then I'm worried for me because I want to get the F out of there. Yeah. Hello. Our responsibility is the minute we hit the deck is to relax the audience. And that is what is called command. But the tigers come at night With their voices soft as thunder I think that you can see when people care and when you, and audiences can see when they don't care. Because you, you seem like someone in the years I've bumped into you, run into you, known you, known you better. You seem to care the exact same amount as you used to. I love what I do. And I love the audience and I love the fact that I get to do it. And I love, I, I love our craft. 
very, very much. And it's in our, it's a noble craft. We have a responsibility to it and to the audience and to the playwright and to the message. I won't ever care less. He took my childhood in his You can see Patti Lapone next in the third season of American horror story Coven on FX. In a minute, I'll talk with Tony-nominated playwright John Robin Bates, who said about Patti, there's an instrument in her. She's the kind of actor that makes me feel compelled to write. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth and honest conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers. I never was comfortable in front of a camera. Really? I never felt I was photogenic. I was never happy with how I looked. I became a musician because it's about a microphone, not about a camera. Hear about Billy Joel's insecurities and David Letterman's ambitions. I really thought I could write half-hours, situation comedies. At heresthething.org. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Whatever it is, whatever you do, you're our daughter, and I will love you. John Robin Bates's Broadway play Other Desert Cities was nominated for a Tony this year. The play is about family dysfunction and the choices we make. There are consequences to our actions. What does that mean? How could I trust you? How could I ever be in your presence, my dear? 
Joe Mantello directed other desert cities. He and Bates were a couple in the 1990s. In the theater world, it's hard to find someone who wouldn't want to work with Robbie. He's complicated and kind. During our conversation, John Robin Bates confessed there's been a dark side to his success on Broadway. I'm ruined. I'm ruined from off-Broadway. Now, I may, I sort of say things like, well, that play's an off-Broadway play. It's not a Broadway play. Making fun of myself. You know, you're in this great, great, grand old house, you know, that's built for a kind of big experience, and the drama is somehow expanded. Bates is also wary of going back to Hollywood. In 2006, he left ABC's Brothers and Sisters, a show he created and executive produced after the first season. Working in L.A. was not for him. The guy who really ran the entertainment division kept saying, I, I don't understand why anybody watches this show. Uh, but how soon he would into- call me and scream at me. I actually said to him, I, I don't know who you think you're talking to. Yeah. And I would, you know, politely hang up and say, I'm, I'm leaving the conversation now. It took a while for Robbie Bates to recover. But one day, now back on the East Coast, he got the idea for other desert cities. I, I had forgotten how to write. That, this is the thing I, I think about with other desert cities. Is it's the play where I learned, I taught myself how to write again. I was sitting at a beach with my notebook, and I'm thinking about how to get back into it and what matters to me. And I just sort of self-destructed uh, at Brothers and Sisters. I found myself very much like the character in, in my play, a writer who is a dangerous creature. And I had a note to myself, play about daughter of a famous family who writes a book about her growing up in this family, something like that, the danger of telling the truth that turns out to be a lie. And at that moment, this lady of a certain age walked by me, and she looked to me like um, Pat Buckley, the old doyen of New York conservative politics, the wife of uh, Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley. And I'd had lunch with her once and found her to be charming and engaged and this woman walked by me on this beach with her hat and in a one-piece bathing suit. I immediately felt the mother in that play, and I suddenly remembered old California the way it was when I was a kid, and we were just in the throes of an election at the time, too, or about to be. And the Republicans of certainly of that period, and even more so today, were very confusing to me because they didn't seem recognizable to me as having a coherent, cohesive, cogent argument for their principled positions, which had to be principled in some way. The play just came together in one fell swoop. Old California, conservatives, the old Hollywood system, Reaganites. I, I even remembered I'd gone to high school with I think the daughter of John Gavin. And I thought, you know, and because I love Touch of Evil, and I think, isn't John Gavin? No, he's not in Touch of Evil. He's in in Psycho. He's in all these movies, and I thought about— He was the ambassador to Mexico. That's right, as is the Stacey Keach character in my play. (laughs) And I thought (laughs) (laughs) about— Your character's based on John Gavin. To some extent. There are all these archetypes in there. I love it. 
at the back of all this, of course, there's also Joe Mantello, who, you know, we're no longer a couple, but he's my family, my best friend. And, and you ceased being a couple what year? 2002. So it was a while. And he kept saying to me, with all possible respect, nobody's waiting for the next Robbie Bates play. And, you know, these are chilling words because I have so much to say and it's not coming out. My equivalent of that is my agent said to me, he goes, it's not that these people don't want to hire you because they don't like you. He says, they don't want to hire you because they don't think of you at all. Jesus. I thought, wow. Well, it's terrible because the worst thing that can happen to an artist, I'm invisible. Sure. I no longer matter. For me, writing plays has always been very tricky. I don't know a lot. I don't have a lot to say. I reach things very slowly, and I, I sometimes it seems facile and easy. And to me, sometimes my thoughts and my sort of expressed opinions in plays seem hollow or naive even. Why? Because I know there are deeper truths always to be found and that I'm— But don't you think that seeking them and being aware of that makes you more likely to find it than anybody else? You didn't go to college, did you? No, I didn't. Why? You wound up educating yourself. I wish I had gone to college. Why didn't you? I was a depressed and unsettled kid. Why? I don't—I think I wasn't at peace with probably any— element of who I was, whether it was a sort of nascent intellectual or sort of pre-expressive homosexual kid or... You grew up where? Variously, L.A. You were born where? In L.A. And you lived there till you were how old? Seven, then Brazil for three years in Rio, and then uh, South Africa for six and a half years till I was 18. And your father was in the condensed milk business. My father worked for a... Giant multinational carnation milk, yeah. It was a condensed milk business. So L.A., Brazil, Uh, South Africa. And then back to L.A. LA. And when you finally get back to L.A., how old are you? 18. So high school's over. I just finished high school. I'd sort of lost time through all the travel. What was high school in South Africa like? I couldn't get used to things like cricket and corporal punishment. You know, you'd get caned for, like, not doing well on a spelling test. Literally caned. And I think... I was so busy trying to be sly and charming that I forgot how to be me. That, I think, led me to rebel against learning itself. So I was sort of interested in the few things I was interested in, literature, history, but I wouldn't apply myself to anything except escape. And part of escape meant not going to college. I was really lonely, and I I kind of became a depressed kid. And, How did um, that manifest itself, if you can say? I, I think I... Did you know you were gay then? Yes, I definitely knew that. I knew... Did that add to your depression? Did it make you feel more isolated? Totally. In the environment you lived in? Because it, so it wasn't proactive, the gay community there. In 1973? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well... Um, I think my parents, who loved me very much, were distracted by their own terrors. There are certain families that are born in terror and live in terror. 
Um, conceived in terror. I need you to write a play for me. I want it to be called Conceived in Terror. Billy, <laughs> go ahead. Well, no. I mean, Death of a Salesman is, is a family that lives right. in terror. You were how old when you arrived in Durban? Ten. So you were there eight years. Yeah, I was there almost eight years. A critical time. Ten years old. So all of your real the back half of your childhood, your teenage years especially, you are in Durban. I guess I was 17 or something when we left. But you had finished the high school program. No, no. I finished it in L.A. You did? Where? Yeah, Beverly Hills High now, School. Now, what was that like? I, you know, was the only kid I knew who rode their bike to school because everybody else's parents had given them a Fiat. Literally? Yeah, or something. Who were your friends then? Who did you become friends with? Anyone? Oh, yeah. In fact, Jenny Livingston went on to make uh, Paris is Burning great documentary. Tina Landau, a great theater director. Gina Gershon, my oldest friend from high school. We were in plays together in the drama department. So I became friends with, and I say this with real respect and love, with fellow freaks. How were you feeling about yourself and about life that last year in Beverly Hills? I, I think I was scared to death still. I mean, it was just a new form of foreignness, but it had the pattern of something very familiar to me. But you know, I remember being taken to a party really early on, and I had developed a kind of weird eye beforehand for art. I thought maybe I was going to be a painter or an art historian or something. And I walk into this house, and there is a giant David Hockney, and next to it is a giant Motherwell. I'm standing in front of this giant painting that's famous that I've looked at in books, Thames and Hudson art books, while I was in Durban at the art library of the university. I don't know, the world was just very real and different, and it was easier to, like, have sex, and it was easier to to function. Were you writing? I guess I was sort of writing, yeah. What were you writing? I was writing really bad short stories about alienated Paul Bowles kids adrift in foreign countries, which is basically, to tell you the truth, still what I'm doing. It just looks <laughs> slightly, the wallpaper's prettier now. Where were you living at that age? I was living um, on friends' sofas, like the parents of children I went to high school you were, with. You were the pity. beloved house guest. I was. I was just this freak, you know, and I was at odds with my family at the time, you know, and I had escaped, and it was just a nightmare. How do we get from there to fair country, Gordon Davidson? You know in Pinocchio where he falls in with actors? Mm -hmm. I'm walking around. I ran into this girl I, I knew from high school. She said, what are you doing? And I, I'm sort of looking for a job. I think I'm starving to death. I'm not sure. She said to me, and I should have known, she said, well, my father just fired me. He needs a new, a new assistant. <laughs> He needs and? a new assistant. And I was like, well, what does he do? And she said, oh, he's a film producer. Who was the film producer? It's this great guy. And he... <laughs> <laughs> My first day at the office, he says to me, whatever you do, answer the phones, but never pick up the phone. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And he said, you'll do fine. And he had a gang of cronies all of whom had contempt for the studio system 
had done well, fallen out of favor, usually had destroyed themselves through my favorite thing, their own ambivalence. I found myself at home for the first time in my life. <laughs> With a women nest of scorpions. Yes, you did. I did. I found myself, I said, this I know. Yeah, because nobody is trying to pass. Yeah. It's a den of thieves, yeah, quite literally. Here. It was still the days of speakerphone. And they would have fights. They had a tower on Sunset Boulevard. They had a nest of rooms in a tower. And they would be fighting with each other. And then there would suddenly be a pause. Someone would say, geez, if you could see what I see right now, that girl walking down Sunset, she is so beautiful. The fight was over. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing meant anything. The narcotic of sex. That's right. One of them asked for a glass of water. This is my first few weeks there. 1982, what do I know? <laughs> I would go to the sink, bring a glass of water, spit it out like practically on me and say, this isn't water. And I would say, yes, it's water. What are you talking about? That's water. They'd say, I want professional water. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole time became about professional water. How long did that last? Three, four, five. Like uh, four some years. No. No, but it got— You were in the scorpion's nest looking down at the women's asses for four years? And I would copy everything down. Right. And so at the same time I started hanging around with these actors, there was a sort of uh, an equally desperate contingent of avant-gardist, odd playwrights living on the fringes of everything. And so I lived between these two worlds, one of which was sort of— drunk and druggy, and the other was insane, megalomaniacal. Oh, I can't say the word. Megalomaniacal. Thank you. Megalomaniacal. I'm here for. Maniacal. You just think of the words and I'll say them. Thank you. I think we're going to beam each other. Uh, I know. It's like Bluetooth without <laughs> the technology. Bluetooth me. Go ahead. I had to come up with a play for one of these sort of workshop things that we would put together. And one of these playwrights said to me, so what's your play? And me, bullshitting, I said, yeah, it's called Mislansky Zelensky. I, on the spot, I just came up with the name. Based on those guys. Yeah. I said, yeah, it's called Mislansky Zelensky. It's you just, based it on the guys in the tower. I said, it's just them talking. And I put all my notes together, and we did it. And that was the first one you wrote. Yeah. Almost 30 years later, Bates continues to draw inspiration from all types of sources. With other desert cities, Bates wrote the part of the family's patriarch with one of his favorite performers in mind, Stacy Keach. I worship Stacy. I mean, I worship Stacy. He's, he is... One of the great wild Mustangs of, of all theater history. He's great, and I love him so much. You know, he and Joe didn't know each other, and so they got on the phone before rehearsal, and Stacy says to Joe, you know, I... I've worked with Robbie before. We've worked together before, and I, I know him well. And do you, do you know him? Have you worked with him? And how, how well do you know him? And Joe says, I kind of know him. We lived together for 12 years. <laughs> but that's Stacy. Kind of know. He's like, oh, damn. The great thing about Stacy is he brings centuries of actors' honor onto that stage with him. The honor of 
honoring fellow actors, the honor of listening, the privilege of being an actor, the privilege of being in the theater, not missing a single show in his 70s, the rituals of it. The privilege of working in the theater is the thing that has been, of everything that's happened to me, just the great honor of being in the American theater in some capacity is what I'm left with, that it's a privilege to be in it. I'm lucky to have found my way back to it. This is Alec Baldwin. Coming up, I speak with the man who inspired John Robin Bates, Stacy Keach, an artist who has influenced a generation of actors. The madness liberated me in a way. It liberated yeah, it me. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mark me. I will. My hour has almost come, when I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. Stacy Keach has played such roles as Richard III, King Lear, Hamlet, as well as Hamlet's ghost, Falstaff, and Willie Loman. He's also played the president of Duff Beer in The Simpsons, and Sergeant Stadenko in Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. The only way to catch a doper is when you yourself become a smoker. 
Keach is undoubtedly the only actor in Up in Smoke who has also worked with director John Huston. Keach starred in Huston's film Fat City. But perhaps Keach is best known as the irresistible fedora-wearing detective Mike Hammer. Are you for hire? No, not at the moment. My money's too dirty? I've already got a client. A lesser performer might have found himself with limited offers after what was Keach's longest-running job. Not so for the 71-year-old actor. His key to career longevity is simple. He says, quote, You need television and movies to make a living, but you'll be taken more seriously if you are stage-worthy. Stage-worthy in Chicago and Washington, but especially New York. And last year, as playwright John Robin Bates mentioned earlier in our show, New York audiences saw him on Broadway in Bates's other desert cities. Well, we all have our ways of coping, and mine is to be overprotective late in life. Stacy Keach's dedication to his craft is unwavering, but his technique has changed over the years. I think in my early days, I started pretty much as, you know, from the outside and tried to get a, a, a fix on what the character looked like and then perhaps what he sounded like after that. But it, it wasn't the best way to start. I mean, I think it's better to start inside and work out if you mm-hmm. can. And I, in later years, I've done that more and more. But I just finished a picture with Alexander Payne called Nebraska, where he called me and he said, you, you know, you're, I was playing the bad guy in this, uh, and he, he said, your teeth are too good. So the whole character became centralized in terms of, you know, what I, was in here, you know, and they, they made these snarly teeth for me, and mm. which were, it was great, you mm. know, and it sort of gave me a feeling, and I would look at myself in the mirror and make, you know, facial expressions. And that sort of gave me the feeling of where this guy was coming from, you know. But it varies. I mean, if you're playing, um, like I was just down in in Washington, I'm going to do Falstaff again next year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's this big, fat, corpulent guy. And um, interestingly enough, even with all the physical manifestations of that character, that character, you've got to go inside. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's... You know, and when it's I play, not enough just to play the, the look. No, not at all. Not at all. When I first did it, it was back in 1968, I guess, 45 years ago. You did what in 68? Falstaff. And you, did they put a suit on you? Oh, huge. It's big. Yeah, you fat. were a very lean guy. I was. Yeah. You know, and, and I had to wear this big fat suit. Yeah. Theoni Aldridge designed his <laughs> leather costume for me. And and what did they do back then in terms of your face when you're lean? Whiskers. Oh, I see. Eyebrows. Right. Had a wig, of course. And a bulbous nose. What was it about? I was way you? too young when I played him. Well, I was going to say, what was it about you that back then, when you were this athletic, yeah. lean, yeah. leading man in the movie business, you yeah. wanted to put a fat suit on? Why, why <laughs> were you running into? The, why were you diving into a fat suit? Well, because I, you know, it's, you wanted great parts. It's exactly, and that is one of the probably I think. Of all of Shakespeare's characters, I think it's probably one of the, you know, that and Hamlet are probably the two greatest, better than Lear, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a greater part. It's more, it's, there's much more going on with Falstaff, I think. And you're going to do it again? Yeah. So you did Falstaff the first time when? 68. 68 in the park. Oh, yeah, it makes me feel very young. 45 years later. 45 years later. You're going to play I, Falstaff. And I won't have to wear padding this time. No, I'm teasing. Well, who yeah. are you doing it for? Michael Kahn at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. Oh, the area of D.C. Yeah, we're going to do both parts. We're going to do uh, part one and part two. One of the great experiences of my life was doing those plays together in the park. We started at 10 o'clock at night, 
we did part one and then part two, and as the dawn came up in the at the end of the evening, we it was the early morning. It was just when uh, Falstaff was being deposed by Prince Hal, played by Sam Waterston. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you grew up where? I grew up in Southern California. And your was, dad was in the business. Dad was in the business. What did he do? He was a an actor, director. Producer, he did a show, a radio show called Tales of the Texas Rangers with Joel McRae. And that, when I was 12 years old, he used to take me down to NBC Studios and uh, I would watch these actors do their thing. It was a live radio broadcast with all the foley and the sound effects and the horses and, you know. Right. And it, that was magic for me. And radio was how I sort of got into it. And your dad worked in radio. Yeah. That was his thing. That was his thing. Yeah, did, what did he say to you? What was his uh, um, program with you, so to speak, in terms of your career? Did he want you to do this? No. Or no? He did absolutely that. not. He said, no, you, you know, uh, acting is not something you should do. You want to be, you, he wanted me to be a lawyer. And he wanted my brother to be a doctor. He said, you know, it's too, it's too, this business is too fraught with insecurity. Did you almost do that? Did you think about it? Well, you know what? When I, I, graduated, I, I started acting in high school, junior high school, I was doing plays. And every time I would get a part in a play, my dad would get very excited. He would get very animated. And he wanted to show me, like, for example, I was doing the stage manager in our town in mm -hmm. high school. And he would come in and he'd, he, it was his favorite play. And he showed me, he said, no, when you're, when you're describing that, he said, you describe that big butternut tree. You've got to see that tree. And when you're, when you're working in the, in the drugstore and you're getting ice cream out of, the, um, out of the ice cream box, you've got to reach your hand way down in there and pull it. I mean, he was so animated. He, he, he came specific. alive. Very specific and very much alive. So all of his BS about not do this, you're not going to do this, you're going to be a lawyer. But did he live long enough to see you? See yes. He, yeah. And what you. did he? What did he? Well, then no, that was the good part. <laughs> then you're a genius. Yeah. Well, then then it was a good thing. Yeah, because it wasn't until I got to Berkeley and I was I started. You know, I was given an edict: you're not going to be in in any plays. First year, as a freshman, I was studying political science and economics. I mean, that was it. You know, I was going to. I was going to do the same thing. So at the end of the first year, I, I got a play. I, I finally, you know, I, I, I passed. I got through the first year, and he said, "Okay, if you want to do a play, you can do a play." So I did a play, and and that was it. It was a play called "To Learn to Love." It was written by one of the professors, and it was about these Navy guys, and it was a big hit on campus. The professor cast me the next semester as De Flores in the Changeling, a Jacobean play written by uh, Thomas Middleton. Middleton and Rowley, great, great piece. Sort of a Richard III type of character, and I had, you know, success with that. And my, my parents came and saw me, and they said, well, I guess, you know, you may have some talent, so maybe if this is what you want to do, we'll support you. So they, they came Knowing around. Knowing you had some talent, at least they thought you're, you're on to something. Yeah, and I loved yeah. it. I mean, I, and I, I couldn't Make stand economics and political <laughs> science, man. I was terrible. This was at USC? No, Berkeley. At Berkeley. So. Yeah, I went for you. got a degree in drama. I got a degree in drama and English, yeah. And yeah. then what did you do after that? Then I went, uh, I went to Yale, drama school, for right. a year. What was the program there? Was it, was it longer than a year, or you finished the whole it was thing a, a year? No, it was a three-year program. I only stayed a year. I didn't like it at all. Why? Fact, well, in those days, Constance Welsh was the acting teacher, and she was pretty much the, very much old school. Learning all these phonetic uh, signs and symbols, and I mean, this had nothing to do with what I was interested in. I'd done two summers at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival between my junior and senior year and between my senior year and my first year at Yale, and played some pretty good parts, Henry V and Mercutio and Barone. I, I, I was getting my feet wet with Shakespeare, 
and these big, wonderful was cards. Was Shakespeare a part of your uh, your childhood and your upbringing? No. I mean, why are you so, you're pretty much steeped in Shakespeare in yeah. your early stage career. Why? This was just your own passion. Oregon Shakespeare Festival. That's was where, responsible for yeah, it. Yeah. You went there and you were at home. That's right. That's where it started. That's where it started. And then when I came back east, I was at Yale, and I wasn't crazy about Yale. No, because phonetic, no more phonetic symbols. Right. No more for you know, And Joe. And after that year, where Joe found you? Joe. Joe Papp. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm well. And thanks to Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you were ready. Yeah, I think so. Pretty and, much. And Henry Hughes, Saturday, he was, he was a drama critic for the Saturday Review, wrote a nice review of me doing Henry V. Joe had read that, and when I got to Yale, I, I called the New York Shakespeare Festival one to audition. He said, come on down. So I went and I met Joe Papp and in this smoke-filled office in, here in Manhattan. I sat down and he said, okay, what are you going to do for me? And I said, well, I'll do a little piece from uh, Henry V, Upon the King. And I started reading. I got three, I got, I, Upon the King, Let Us Our Lives. That's it. And, uh, are you a member of Equity? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, you're going to be. You're going to play Marcellus in my production of Hamlet this summer. Julie Harris is going to be playing Ophelia. Alfred Ryder is going to be playing Hamlet. We'll see you this summer. That was it. I walked out there. I was floating on air. Sure. I mean, that was it, you know. And then summer of 63, 60, 64, 1964. And then I went to England after that on a Fulbright scholarship to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. For what? To study for a year. Well, why did you stop? Now you've got, I mean, <laughs> I wonder if this is the beginning of a pattern where yeah. you, you get the hot hand here and Joe Papp wants you. Yeah. And then you say, okay, hold on, fellas, i got to go over to London for a year. Well, that's it. And he was not happy about that. Joe, and interestingly enough, he was also on, I didn't realize this, it was just a coincidence, he was on the screening committee for the Fulbright guys. And when I came in, he said, what are you here for? And I said, I'm auditioning for, and he said, don't do Upon the King again. I've seen it. You know, do something else. And He was tough. And he was tough. And I did not, I, I was not given a Fulbright. I was chosen as an alternate. I was really depressed. That so you summer, went to Lambda. That summer, I got a note from the Fulbright Commission saying, the guy who was supposed to go dropped out, so you're in. So I You made it by the skin of your teeth. That's it. Yeah. Now, why Lambda? Were you going to train for the musical theater? Or no, no, to... for classical theater. Right, for classical theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. were there for a year? I was there for a year. What did you benefit from that? Well, first of all, the exposure to the English theater in that year was unbelievable. It's incomparable. Unbelievable. And I, I got to see, I saw Olivier do not only Othello, I saw him do The Master Builder, mm. saw his production that he directed of the... Of the uh, of the crucible, oh, it, was, it was an amazing year. Were you ever tempted to stay there? Did no. you feel you belonged there? No, Americans doing classical theater still is looked on a little bit askance by the English. I mean, sure. you know, you know, just like we don't, you know, I don't want them to touch Williams either. Exactly, right. it's the same deal, you know. So you finished there and you came right home. I came back, then I came to Lincoln Center, and I auditioned for Jules Irving and Herbert Blau, who were just coming from the Actors Workshop in San Francisco. And they said, you're, you know, come on in. You're the, you know, you're in the company. So I was married at the time. Why'd you do that? I know. Well, that was a mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake. That was a mistake. And then... What's the longest run you've ever done as an actor on stage? Um, about nine months. About that was it. Well, no, Other Desert Cities ran for about uh, almost a year, I think. That's, that's about it for me. What's I the role it, you've been the most connected to? Well, I did Hamlet three times mm -hmm. to try to get it right. I never did. I never got Why it. Why do you I, say that? Three different productions. What was the first one? 
Uh, Long Wharf Theater. Arvin Brown directed it. And what year? Let me see if I can remember the year. It was. It had to be seventy. I think it was seventy. 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 Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, I was actually. Well, they say Hamlet's thirty. You know, mm-hmm. so I was about. I was about thirty when I did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so you're up in New Haven. I was up in New Haven, and. You know, the first time you play that part, you're, I was so intimidated by the fact of all the other actors who played it, and you know, it's intimidating. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and I once I because you were Hamlet. That's right. It becomes your Hamlet. And most of the time, I was concerned about getting the lines right and getting, you know, just getting the moves right, just putting it all together and figure, and then trying to figure it out. That summer, Joe Papert came and saw it, and he said, "Come into the park, and we'll do it a different production." And I got a, I got closer to it. I got closer to. I felt I never had the perfect show, but I got closer to it. And then so that was two, right after New Haven. Right after. And then what? Two years later, Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, totally different production. Gordon Davidson directing, and um, I had one night where I got close, where I really got close, and then. I don't know what happened. Something I think it was in the very last scene. The, I think the hardest thing about Hamlet is, is uh, you know, is is after that amazing duel in the last act, but when he dies, you know, is not to be caught breathing on stage. It's, it, that's the hardest, one of the hardest things to do, I think, in that particular play. I mean, anyway, talk about Houston. What was it like? Oh God! Well, the first—I remember the first time I met him. He came to visit me on the set of Doc. We were shooting a, a western in Spain. With Faye Dunaway and Hershulin, and we were, and uh, this script, Fat City, written, it was a very popular book written by Leonard Gardner about boxing, and uh, and he came to see me personally on the set. I mean, to have John Houston visit me on the set of a movie, I mean, it was, you know, and he was very gracious, and uh, he said, Stace, I've got a part for you, and I think you ought to take a look at this, and... Uh, he treated me as if I was his son, right from the word go. I mean, he and I, I, I just, uh, he was so warm. He welcomed you. Yeah. yeah that's and rare we, in the business. Oh, yeah. And, but he, he, and he was larger than life. He didn't make any apologies for that. I mean, and, and he loved to gamble. Loved to gamble. And we, I wonder what that was about. Well, I, I, it's very interesting because we, and I love to gamble, too. I, you know, I enjoy, I, I mean... What's your game? Well, with him, it was backgammon. Right. We would play backgammon between scenes on the set. For 100 bucks a game? No, no, no. Dollar dollar a point. Yeah. 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 So he just liked it for the the fun. Yeah, but he... He wasn't a gambler trying to make money. No, not not with me. Now, you know, but but we, I went, I remember we went to, we were in London together and he would, you know, he said, let's go to the casino. He loved, you know, he go a little gaming. He had a little gaming. <laughs> Very good. Yes. I don't know. What is it about gambling? It's the Dostoevsky thing. I mean, the challenge of, I mean, they, they say that you, people gamble to lose. They don't really gamble to win. How to compensate for the feeling of loss. You know, I, I think there's something to that. I mean, that was, you know. Anyway. I, I love the, the, the line someone told me that people gamble to find that if God favors them or not. Ooh. They want to know, does God favor me today? Well, you know, uh, I, I, I win, and that's that's my sign that God favored me. I like that I, because I still I get on I get on my iPhone and I'll, I'll uh, you know, <laughs> and I, I there's a game called Bejeweled. It's a little bit like uh, Angry Birds, right? You know? And I feel like if I can get it right, then God's looking good. Yes, you know? yes. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm complete. Something. Yeah, 
I love it. I mean, you know. What was it like shooting the movie with you? So what was he like as a director? Was he insightful for you? Did he help you? Absolutely. He I mean, was. Oh, yeah. Well, he's an actor, first of, of course. All. You know, and he, and, but he, and he always wanted to give you your space. He never, he, I mean, he said, there's only two directions, days, A little more or a little less. Hmm. That was it. He would let us block the scenes. He would, he would Susan Terrell and I, God love her, we would, uh, he would say, go in there and you, you stage the scene the way you feel like it should be staged in a, a domestic scene in a kitchen or something like that. And, and we would go in there and we would stage the scene. We'd work out the moves. There's a lot of trust to have in his actors. Tremendous. Yeah. He'd come in and look at it and then we'd, we'd move things around a little bit, make a tweak here, a tweak there. And that's the way he worked. The, the thing that really fascinated me about Houston was... Uh, at the very end of the movie, I'll never forget, Jeff Bridges and I were sitting in this kid in this um, cafe, and it's the very last scene in the movie, and in the background there were these people sitting at tables, smoke rising, and they were, they were gambling, and they were playing cards, and they were talking to each other, and he said, all right, I want everybody in the background to just freeze. And you could see the smoke rising up, so you knew it was not a freeze frame that was done technically by the editors. It was something that he directed. And I said, John, why did you do that? And he said, because you, when you said, when Billy Tully looks over there and sees nothing, he said, I just want there to be the feeling that God is intervening here in some way. I said, well, why, how did you come up with this idea? And he said, uh, the devil made me do it. Wherever John Houston is, I want him to know that when the time comes for me and Stacy, we'll be more than ready to join him for backgammon and cigars. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive, more in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and athletes like Dwight Gooden. My mom was very strict, you know, very direct with stuff. Well, my dad kind of gave me a pass with a lot of things as long as I was playing baseball. Hear from Dwight Gooden and NFL quarterback Andrew Luck at heresthething.org. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, Lou Olkowski, and Josh Rogozin. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.